This evening, we're going to look at John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible with you this evening, or if you can get a pew Bible, we're going to open it to John chapter 4. And John chapter 4 and verse 1 through until verse 30 here this evening. If you're looking at a pew Bible, you'll find it, you'll find it sorry, on page 1066. That's 1066. And we're going to read this and then... A little while later, Pete is going to come and preach on it for us. So this is Jesus encountering a Samaritan woman at a well. So let us hear God's word. John 4, verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining, was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of the ground of Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' And his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, You're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who you speak to am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman but no one asked, what do, you do, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, 
See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Amen. And we thank God so much for the reading from his word. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please do turn with me to that passage that we read earlier in John chapter 4. There are few better feelings in the world, I think, than having your thirst quenched. You know what it's like, don't you, when you've been out in the sun on a warm day? We do have those occasionally. And your mouth is dry and you're sweating and you're parched. There is nothing like a big cold glass of water to quench your thirst. It's one of the best feelings in the world. In this story, Jesus is claiming that he alone is able to quench the thirst of our souls. And if we want to have life to the full, eternal life, then we will only find it in him. Let's say a little bit about the, the context in which this whole really fascinating story unfolds. I hope you picked that up as we were reading it. It is a, a brilliant encounter between Jesus and this woman. Um, in this passage, Jesus does things that were very unexpected in that particular culture. The society in which he lived and ministered was very patriarchal. It's not like our ultra-feminist culture today. Men were the dominant movers and shakers in society, and for a man to speak publicly to a woman like Jesus does here was almost unheard of. On top of that, she is, of course, a Samaritan woman. Jesus was a Jew, and in this culture, Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. Centuries beforehand, the Jews had been taken into exile by the Assyrian Empire, Some of the Jews had stayed behind and they had intermarried with other peoples in the region. They had formed a new race, the Samaritans. And this new race took some parts of the Jewish religion and some parts of the Canaanite religions and kind of made a hybrid religion of their own. And so the Jews came to consider the Samaritans as racial half-breeds and religious heretics. They thought they were inferior to them in every way. These two groups of people hated each other They were disgusted by each other. They were deeply suspicious of one another. And they both thought that the other side was wrong and they were right. And so for Jesus to speak to a woman and then a Samaritan woman at that was a strange and unexpected thing for him to do. And then on top of all that, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that this was a woman with a very shady background. Let's just say she's not the type of woman that your parents would be delighted with if you brought her home. How do we know that? Well, we know it from the conversation, but we know it actually quite early on in the passage. If you look at the end of verse 6 and at the start of verse 7, it tells us that it was noon or the sixth hour when the Samaritan woman comes to the well to get a drink. That little detail tells us something very important about her reputation. We know she's a woman with a a bad reputation. Why? Well, because in that climate, women would have come to the well first thing in the morning when it was still cool. Temperatures in that climate could get incredibly hot, and so the women would come first thing in the morning to make sure that they had enough water for the whole day. To come at noon like this was to come at the hottest point of the day, and so this woman was making her task very difficult. So why did she come at noon? She came at noon because she knew that no one else would be there. Either she wanted to be on her own, or perhaps more likely it had been made clear to her that she wasn't welcome to come to the well first thing in the morning with everyone else. She was, you see, a moral outcast. 
And the other women probably wanted nothing to do with her, and actually they probably spent a fair bit of their morning talking about her and her shameful past. So here is this woman, an outcast, lonely, with all sorts of baggage and scars and hurt and pain, and she finds herself meeting with Jesus. By chance, no. Jesus doesn't do coincidences. This meeting is ordained by God so that we can learn something about who Jesus is, and what he has come to do. So first thing I want us to to notice in this story is that Jesus deals with us all equally. Jesus deals with us all equally. Jesus cuts through the moral and social and political and ethnic barriers that divide humanity, and he comes to everyone and says that we are all broken, that we are all in need of the living water of his grace and forgiveness. Our culture is somewhat obsessed with the importance of equality, isn't it? Whether it's marriage equality or pay equality or gender equality or equality in education or equality on languages and road signs. Equality is the mantra of the age. We hear about it all the time. But if we really want to see true equality, then we need to listen to what Jesus says about us in the gospel. He deals with us all equally. By that I mean he shows us that we are all sinners. We are all carrying lots of baggage like this woman. We are all scarred and broken. We are all in willful rebellion against God. And as such, we are all in need of his grace and forgiveness. We're all equal in that we are all in desperate need of Jesus. We love to play the blame game when it comes to sin, don't we? Part of that is because, like this woman, we want to deflect the attention away from ourselves. Part of it, if we're honest, is because we don't really want to face up to the reality of our fallenness. Part of it is just because this is how we are as human beings. Ever since the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, we have been playing the blame game. So you'll remember back then, Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent, and both of them blame God himself. But the biblical teaching on sin means that we cannot play the blame game The same behavior exists in our hearts that exists in the heart of those of whom we are so quick to point the finger. There's an illustration that has helped me to understand this a little bit more. Some of you might remember um, a story of a man called Adolf Eichmann. He was um, a Nazi who was very much involved in the um, concentration camps, the death of many of the Jewish people. He was... Uh, caught after World War II in Argentina and brought back to Israel for trial. It was a very public trial. He was tried in 1961 and convicted of his crimes. But one of the witnesses in his trial was this man on the screen. It's a man called Yehil Denur, a Jewish man who, um, when he was brought forward into the witness stand to give evidence at the trial, spoke very poetically for just a couple of minutes about his experiences in the concentration camps, but then collapsed quite dramatically in the courtroom. He was later asked and interviewed on TV in the States about what had happened and why he collapsed, and one reporter wrote this. Was Denur overcome by hatred, fear, horrid memories? No, it was none of these. Rather, as he explained to the interviewer, all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man, 
And then the quotation from Yehiel Denur. I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. What an incredible insight into the human heart. We are all capable of much worse than we might think. The capacity for incredible evil lurks within every human heart. Now, having said all of that, we must then ask the question, does that mean that all sins are the same, that all sins carry equal weight? Well, no. As Presbyterians, we believe that the Bible is our ultimate authority in matters of faith and practice, but we also have subordinate standards that help us to understand what the Bible teaches. Those subordinate standards are the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. And in the shorter catechism, there is a question about whether or not all sins are the same. It's on the screen, question 83. It's worded like this. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Are all sins the same? Answer. Some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. That is to say, we believe because the Bible teaches that some sins are are worse than others. You don't have to look very far in the Bible in order to see this. When Jesus is on trial before Pilate in John chapter 19, he says that he who handed him over to Pilate is guilty of a greater sin than Pilate. Famously in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about a speck in one person's eye and a plank in another person's eye. He clearly felt that some sins are worse than others. Some sins in themselves and by reason of several several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. So for example, it is far more serious to commit adultery than to privately fantasize fantasize about it. Both are bad, and the more one privately fantasizes about adultery, the more likely it is that it will actually happen. But the effects of committing adultery as opposed to dreaming about it are far worse. Or another example, slightly more trivial. If I was to shoot John dead right now, or if I was to spit on him and tell him I hate him, are those two things equal? Of course not. They're both ugly sins, and Jesus does call murder hatred. But John isn't dead if I just spit on him. Some sins are worse than others. And in that sense, not all sins are the same. However, Next question in the Shorter Catechism. What does every sin deserve? Answer, every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. So all sins do deserve the same outcome. Every sin deserves God's wrath. What is God's wrath? It is his just, settled, personal hostility towards evil. The Bible teaches us very clearly that no one can face God's wrath and survive. So while not all sins are the same, they're not all equally heinous, all sins do deserve the same outcome. Back to this woman at the well. A notorious sinner, an outcast with baggage and scars and hurt and pain, a needy person. We might think that we are better than her, but we're all needy people. One of the things that I really think we're meant to understand from this passage is that all of us 
are much, much more needy than any of us care to think that we are. You know something? You are incredibly needy. You're so needy. You go home from church tonight and your spouse or your parents are into work tomorrow. People ask you, what did the preacher tell you in church last night? He told me that I'm incredibly needy. That's a little bit better now. I'm a bit extreme. But the people who you tell that to will probably think you're right. You are incredibly needy. And it's true. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that if we read this story and we think that this woman needs Jesus more than we do, or that our need isn't as great as hers, then we have missed the point of the gospel entirely. To some extent, we are all this woman, outcast with baggage, scars, hurts, pain, needy for grace and forgiveness. That's the first thing. Jesus deals with us all equally. Second thing then, Jesus exposes our hearts. Notice how patient Jesus is in these verses with this woman. He is both gentle when he needs to be, but he's also incredibly direct and bold when he needs to be. And actually throughout the whole conversation, like we've said, this woman is trying to deflect attention from herself, distract Jesus even. She doesn't want to be exposed, but Jesus sees right through her attempts to hide the truth and masterfully exposes the deepest and darkest secrets of her heart. He talks to her in verses 10 to 14 about living water, water that will spring up in her life to eternal life. Water will mean, that will mean that she never thirsts again. Of course, Jesus is talking about much more than just water here, isn't he? He is talking about spiritual thirst and the satisfaction that can only come from a relationship with him. This is something that, that Jesus does frequently in John's gospel. He uses the physical world to highlight our deeper spiritual need. So he talks to Nicodemus about the need to be born again. He describes himself as being the bread of life, as being the light of the world. Here he's talking about living water. And when he does that, he's trying to teach us something important about himself. But more than that, he's trying to teach this woman and us something very profound about ourselves. Namely here, that we all live for something outside of ourselves. We all live for something outside of ourselves. And then it looks as though in verse 16, as though Jesus is changing the subject. In verse 16, he tells the woman to go and get her husband, but actually he is not changing the subject. What Jesus is doing here is he is showing this woman where she was trying to quench her thirst. He is showing this woman what she has been living for outside of herself. She had been living for men, but it wasn't working for her because here she is, an outcast, lonely, with baggage and scars and hurts and pain, and she is standing at a well in the middle of the day on her own. And she tries to deflect from her relationship problems by telling Jesus that she has no husband in verse 17. And that was true, sort of, but it was a half-truth. And Jesus points out that she has had five husbands and the man that she is currently with is not her husband. Imagine how freaked out this woman must have been. She's trying to deflect from the mess of her life, but Jesus sees right through all of her issues. She pinpoints the ex- he pinpoints the exact mess that she is in. Imagine tonight if someone was to, to walk into church and expose everything that you had ever done in your whole life. 
including all of the stuff that you think is a secret and all of the stuff that you don't want anyone else to know about, who among us would not be completely ashamed and humiliated and terrified? Who among us would not want to get out? In all of our hearts, there are dark secrets, aren't there? Things that we like to keep hidden away. It's a bit like that that drawer in your house where you kind of just put all the junk, you know, the stuff that you don't know what to do with, but you don't really know how to deal with it. So you kind of shove it all in a drawer. Some of you have more than a drawer. Some of you have whole rooms of it. But we try to ignore it and we try to forget about it. But Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. He knows all about this woman and he knows all about you. He knows the secret mess and junk of your life. He knows the stuff that you're trying to hide and ignore and forget. He exposes our hearts. As the conversation develops, this this woman tries to deflect things even more in verses 19 to 20. She begins to talk about temples and engages in something of a theological debate with Jesus. And sometimes people do this as well. Church people in particular tend to be good at this. Rather than talking about our hearts, we find that we're much more comfortable talking about church or about abstract theology. And this woman tries to change the subject, but Jesus is having none of it. He's saying to her, okay, you want to talk about temples? Then let's talk about temples. I am going to render them all obsolete. I am going to make temples redundant because I am actually the one that you need. That's essentially what Jesus is saying in verses 23 and 24. He is patient with the woman here. He is patient with us too. But let's be clear. He wants to expose our hearts. And for a moment, it seems as though this woman wants to keep her distance from Jesus. She wants to deal with him on a superficial level. Jesus does not want to deal with you on a superficial level. He does not just want you to look the part. He does not want you to fake it as a Christian. He wants to get personal with you. He wants to change you at the very deepest and darkest parts of your soul. One writer says, Christ only meets us on the field of reality. We cannot deal superficially with Jesus. He simply won't let us away with that. He wants to do a deep work in our hearts, and oftentimes that means he has to cut us right to the heart. But notice that when Jesus exposes our hearts and our secrets, he doesn't do it to shame us or to ridicule us. He does it to redeem us and transform us. Look at verses 28 and 29 of the passage. See how the woman responds when Jesus exposes her heart. He speaks to her about the living water that he offers. She isn't terrified. She isn't ashamed. She isn't angry at being found out. She leaves her water jar. You notice that detail? the very thing that she has come to the well for in the first place. And then she says something incredible. Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. I think those are some of the most remarkable and dramatic lines in the whole of John's gospel. Why does she say that? It's an incredible reaction. If someone came in here and could tell you everything about your whole life, you would want to get away from that person or you would want to get rid of that person. This woman doesn't do either of those things. She wants other people to meet this person. Why? She's realized two things. She's realized that Jesus is more precious than anything else in the world, hence leaving the water jar. 
she also realizes that no one in the whole world is more safe than Jesus. She doesn't feel the shame of exposure. She experiences the joy of being known and loved and forgiven and accepted. Deep down, that's what we all want. And she wants others to experience that as well. This woman knows that Jesus isn't threatening to ridicule or to ruin her, but rather to forgive her and restore her. A few years ago, Netflix got into a little bit of trouble for, for tweeting this. Their US Twitter account tweeted, to the 53 people who've watched A Christmas Prince every day for the past 18 days, who hurt you? There was public uproar at the thought that Netflix were so closely monitoring the viewing habits of so many people and that they were willing to expose them so publicly. We fear being exposed, don't we? All of what we do and look at and watch and read and listen to, all of our chats exposed, all of our likes exposed, all of our secrets exposed, we're terrified of that. Part of our human nature means that we fear exposure. It's been like that since Genesis 3 as well. When our first parents sinned, they felt the shame of their nakedness and exposure, and so they sought to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And the human race have become experts in sowing fig leaves and covering up the parts of their lives that they want to keep hidden from others and from God. But Jesus knows about it all. Nothing about your life or my life is hidden from him. He knows you and he sees you right down to the bottom. But he is not put off by you. Jesus is here tonight, but he is not here to scold you. Nor is he here to tell you to clean yourself up. Nor is he here to leave you wallowing in your guilt. Nor is he here to deal with you reluctantly. He is here offering you his peace. He is here offering you the living water of eternal life. He is here to expose your heart, yes, but he is also here to quench your thirst. Netflix, the world, will judge and condemn you. Jesus was judged and condemned in your place so that you can be free. That leads us on then to the, to the last point, that Jesus embraces our mess. Notice in the passage that Jesus says who he is. In verse 25, the woman says that she knows that Messiah is coming. And then in verse 26, Jesus drops the bombshell that he is that Messiah. He is the one who can take the mess of her life and turn it around. What does Messiah mean? It means anointed one. The New Testament word for Messiah is Christ. And so when we talk about Jesus Christ, it's not a surname, but a title. That title means anointed one. It denotes the idea of a rescuer king. Jesus is God's rescuer king. So we have to ask, what did he do to rescue us? Well, he has entered into the mess of our world. He has entered into the mess of your life in order to rescue you. Think about why this whole encounter takes place. Why does Jesus meet this woman? He meets her because he is thirsty. And if he hadn't have been thirsty, he wouldn't have had to go to the well, and so he wouldn't have met this woman, and so she wouldn't have found living water. Why is Jesus thirsty? He is thirsty is because he has become a human being. He is great. He is God. 
but he allows himself to become weak and tired, thirsty. Why? Because in order to rescue us, he had to become one of us. And actually, if you read right to the end of John's gospel, you'll need to be eagle-eyed. But if you read right to the end, you'll notice that this isn't the last time that Jesus thirsts in John's gospel. In chapter 19 and verse 28, when Jesus is on the cross, he says, I thirst. And the soldiers in charge of the crucifixion offer him sour wine to drink, but there is more than mere physical thirst going on here. He thirsts because he is experiencing the loss of intimacy of his relationship with his father. He is experiencing in himself the very wrath of God for the sins of the world, for the sins of this woman, for your sin and my sin. Remember what we said earlier? No one can face the wrath of God and survive. And so he was cut off from the source of living water so that you and I can have the living water of eternal life. He thirsts so that you and I can have our thirst quenched eternally. The amazing thing about the Lord Jesus is not just that he knows and sees us right down to the bottom. He does. But it's not just that he knows us and sees us. If that was all that he did, then he would just be a a counselor or a confidant. He doesn't just know and see us right down to the bottom. He bears the punishment for our mess upon himself. He is much more than just a counselor or confidant. He is our substitute. So perhaps you're here in church this evening and you know that in the deepest and darkest parts of your soul, you are thirsty. You find yourself longing for meaning and purpose and significance in life. More than that, you find yourself longing for real and deep and lasting forgiveness. The message of this encounter is that Jesus is offering you eternal life, living water that will mean that you never thirst again. Or perhaps you're here this evening and you you are a believer, but even as a believer, you find yourself thirsty. You find that you've grown distracted or stale even in your relationship with Jesus. Perhaps for some time now, you have been content to deal with Jesus on a superficial level. And as you have read this story, you have found your heart being exposed and you have found your heart even being drawn to him again. And I say to you that the offer of living water is for you this evening as well. Jesus invites us all to repent and believe in him so that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. That's the whole point of John's gospel. Perhaps you're here and you're thirsting for the Lord Jesus. He is here offering you the living water of eternal life. Let's pray for grace to receive it and courage to share it with others. Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Father, you alone know our hearts. You know and see us right down to the bottom. And we thank you that as we read these parts of your word, 
you gently and graciously expose our hearts, not so that you can destroy us, but so that you can redeem and transform us. Father, we thank you so much this evening that it is only in the gospel that we can be completely known and completely loved. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has borne your wrath in our place so that we never have to. And we thank you that in him we can have this living water of eternal life. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.